Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week we heard from Mehul Patel about hiring trends in Silicon Valley and beyond and how US companies are reacting to President Donald Trump's move to curb non-immigrant visas for tech employees. This week, we talk to a man who claims that on-demand aviation, otherwise known as flying cars, is a mere three years away. The beauty of urban aviation, right, is that you're moving to three dimensions. Suddenly, you've opened up incredible conduits to move people in and around cities that don't exist today. There are no intersections in the air, right? And you can have these vehicles flying at different altitudes. You can have, like, kind of multiple layers of movement. And you can move much faster. The lack of intersections means you can just move much, much faster than you can on the ground. So these aircraft will be flying at, like, 150 to 200 miles per hour, and that'll probably go up over time. And so the point A to point B time is just radically reduced. That was the voice of Jeff Holden, Uber's chief product officer, who spoke to the FT's Leslie Hook about the company's ambitious plans for urban air transport. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for coming over. Now, perhaps you could just start out by telling us, what is your job at Uber? (laughs) Yeah, so my title is Chief Product Officer, and what I spend all my time on these days is predicting and planning for the future of Uber. So I'm future guy here. And the reason for that is because in the world of technology, technology is inherently exponential, so things are actually coming at us faster every day. And I think of my role as kind of three different pieces, or sort of like anticipating the future in three different ways. One is looking at our mission statement and saying, what does that imply about the things we should be doing either sometime in the future, so planting seeds to kind of make our business durable. Another one is disruption threats. So what kinds of business activities are going on in the world that are potentially the kinds of things that could disrupt Uber's way of doing things? A great example of that is like self-driving technology, right? It's a way of doing what we do, but doing it much less expensively and potentially more safely over time. And so that's the kind of thing that ultimately could disrupt Uber. And so we have to be aware of that and, and figure out what our sort of strategic moves are. And then technology changes that sort of enable new capabilities. So an example of that is like battery tech and you know propulsion technology, electric motors, these kinds of things, which have really enabled what we're here to talk about today, which is you know this urban aviation concept. And so that's what I spend all my time on. And there's enough stuff going on there that it consumes you know more than me, <laughs> more than my time to do that. So I, I no longer focus on the day to day of product development at Uber. You mentioned the words urban aviation, which is indeed what we are here to talk about today. And you know the word flying car gets flown around a lot. You've also said you don't like the word flying car. So if we think about what Uber is working on in terms of moving people through the sky in a vehicle of some sort, what should we call that thing and what is it really going to look like? Yeah, well, we call them eVTOLs. <laughs> it doesn't roll off the tongue the way a flying car does. <laughs> yeah. And so I don't claim to have a beautiful replacement term for it. But that it. name um, eVTOL, just for our listeners, stands for? That's for Electric Vertical Takeoff and Landing Vehicle. By the way, the reason I don't like flying car is because it makes it you think that it's both an aircraft and a car that you're going to drive on the road. And I don't believe that's what we'll be seeing. I mean, who knows? You never can be perfectly clear on the future. But the vehicles that we believe are going to end up winning in the space are what we call distributed electric propulsion aircraft. We think we'll have fixed wings for efficiency. They'll be electric for a lot of reasons, but in part because that's a very efficient way of powering the aircraft. And battery tech is just getting into the zone now where the amount of kind of energy you can hold per kind of kilogram of battery is getting high enough now that you can build these aircraft and they can actually do interesting missions like the kind we want to do. So is that the reason why this is happening now as opposed to a few years ago? Because I mean, if you think about helicopters, drones, 
that kind of stuff has been around for a while. So it's exactly. really the batteries that are the changing point. Yeah, that's a biggie. Um, batteries and then kind of electric propulsion generally. And this whole concept of what's called distributed electric propulsion, DEP, this is an approach to doing propulsion on aircraft that has a lot of advantages. And in fact, when we wrote the Elevate white paper, which is kind of our deep investigation. And just for space. our listeners, Elevate is the word for Uber's quote-unquote flying car or EVTOL um, like initiative. project. Yeah, yeah exactly. Initiative, yeah. yeah, yeah. When we wrote the, the white paper, we sort of used helicopters as a foil for trying to figure out how best to approach this space. So we said, you know, the first question we asked is like, is sort of daily urban aviation, and what I mean by that is like I get up in the morning, I push a button and get a flight and fly to work, right? Like instead of taking a car from, you know, San Jose to San Francisco, I push a button, I get on an aircraft, and it flies me there in, you know, 10 to 15 minutes. That's a game-changing situation. But we said, okay, why is that not being served today with helicopters? And the answer is, in theory, it could be, but practically it can't be because helicopters have a bunch of kind of issues with them. One of them is that they're very noisy. They have two big sources of noise. One is the big rotor that sits on top of that helicopter. The tips of it spin at a very high rate of speed. And, and the other piece of the source of noise is the engine, of course. They're right. combustion engines. So they're just generating a ton of noise. That doesn't work. And they also are very energy inefficient, both because they use combustion engine and because they use this rotor for both lift and propulsion. So instead of using a fixed wing for lift, where we're going over long distances, they're using the top rotor to do that. So helicopters are kind of optimized for like hovering for a long time, that sort of thing. What we want to do is move people from point A to point B. So they end up using three times more energy for horizontal flight than the kind of aircraft we envision, a fixed-wing aircraft. And they also use it three times more energy because they're combustion instead of battery-powered. So together, those numbers end up being about a 10x difference in efficiency. And that efficiency translates to cost. So, you know, you really can't operate these things efficiently. And because helicopters also have a lot of single points of failure in them, they're very expensive to maintain as well. And they have safety issues. So if you want them to be reasonably safe, you have to spend an immense amount of maintenance. Can you just paint a visual picture for our listeners of what these flying cars or EV tolls will look like for people that are yeah. trying to imagine this? Yeah, think of it as a small fixed-wing airplane. Like, if you think of, like, a Cessna or, like, these small airplanes you see around with a propeller on the front, right? A single propeller. You know, take that propeller off and now put a bunch of rotors on the wings or on the fuselage. This is what distributed electric propulsion means, is that you have multiple motors. They each have um, a small rotor associated with them. Together, they spin and they produce, you know, the lift you need for both vertical takeoff and landing and for forward movement. So there could be six, eight. Yeah. Yeah, there could be there could be 20 30 20 it depends on yeah and there are there are designs of all those ranges and sometimes they use a tilt rotor design um, sometimes there's a what's called a tail sitter design where the aircraft sits on its tail and then sort of gets pushed up into the air and then kind of flips into horizontal position once it gets in the air and so there's all kinds of different approaches but we think a fixed wing plus distributed electric propulsion is the best approach today so you guys are going to be working with a couple different companies, I think five different manufacturing partners yeah. to make these craft. Yeah, and that probably will grow over time. Like we're, yeah. still, we're still working on that. We had the five in place by the summit. And so you guys are not going to be making your own vehicles yourself? We do not plan to do that, no. I mean, yeah. who knows in the future what can happen, but we have absolutely no plans to build our own vehicle. The reason is because it's well-served today. There are great vehicle manufacturers out there who actually are very interested, from a business perspective, in partnering with Uber. And we have strengths we bring to the table. You know, we're a network operator. We can do the airspace management, the dispatch and routing and these kinds of things, network optimization that we're really good at. And we can bring the whole demand side of the market to the equation. So we can give a lot of certainty 
we can literally add a button to the app. If that were to happen today, you know, push a button, get a flight, button you know, gets added to the app, 60 million monthly actives would be able to see that and use that, assuming that we're launching all those cities. And so that brings a lot to the ecosystem. And so we kind of know what we bring, and then we're trying to partner with people in a complementary way. So is the idea to kind of let the manufacturers sort out that side of the technology and let them compete against each other for who can come up with the best, most cost-effective design the soonest? Yeah, absolutely. We want to stimulate innovation. So like, we don't want to over-constrain this. Like, for example, we don't want to spec out the design of the aircraft and say, go build this. We want to say, this is the mission we want to serve. And so please go innovate and figure out the best solution to that. And we think that innovation will be ongoing for a long time. We also believe that the demand is going to dramatically outstrip supply for a long time. Yeah, the only time in history the aviation industry has ever manufactured at sort of large scale is for World War II. And that's just not a thing today. Like across the entire helicopter space, the whole industry, about a thousand helicopters are built per year. And so we're talking about numbers. We'll get into the tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of aircraft that are flying all over the world over, you know, 10, 15 years. And the scaling up to that's going to take time. And so there's going to be room for a lot of manufacturers to build these vehicles. Got it. So changing gears slightly, I also wanted to ask why Uber is doing this now. I mean, there have been a lot of changes at the company the last couple of months, the Waymo lawsuit, which is ongoing, the departure of several top executives. Is this biting off too much for Uber at once with this big new initiative that you guys are launching? No, not at all. I mean, this is very much just kind of the way we roll. One of our company values here is what we call inside out. And so we try to do things from a very first principles and like a principle-driven approach, not from a pattern matching or outside world telling us what to do or trying to fast follow somebody. It's innovation process is is in our DNA and it's going on all the time here. And as as I mentioned, I'm devoted 100% to that at this point for looking to the future of Uber. So Uber's not the kind of company that would ever slow down or stop because there's other things going on. And the timing of this is not related to that at all. In fact, this has been going on for us for over a year and we've been thinking about the space and planning our kind of like moves in it. So yeah, those are they're very decoupled from our perspective. And why is it so core to Uber's mission? I mean, Travis, chief executive of Uber, has said that the mission is to provide transportation as reliable as running water everywhere for everyone. That was good. You nailed the mission statement. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've had to type it out in a lot of articles that I read. So. Love that. Also heard him. But, but why does air really have to be part of that? Well, I mean, what, couldn't you get there with ground? No, I don't think you could get there with ground. So what it really comes down to is we have a vision for cities and the way cities can work. We think it's very inspirational and it's quite aspirational. We see congestion and pollution and the sort of land usage for parking. These are just unnecessary things. And one of the things we really focus on at Uber is giving people their time back because there's a better way to do transportation. There's a better way to kind of wire cities. And this is all in the context of kind of a movement of more and more people into cities. So we have this urban kind of migration going on over a long trend line. So all of the problems that you're seeing in cities today are just going to get worse and worse and worse. So the beauty of urban aviation, right, is that you're moving to three dimensions. Suddenly you've opened up incredible conduits to move people in and around cities that don't exist today. There are no intersections in the air, right? And you can have these vehicles flying at different altitudes. So you can have like kind of multiple layers of movement and you can move much faster. The lack of intersections means you can just move much, much faster than you can on the ground. So these aircraft will be flying like 150. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. 
Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. 200 miles per hour, and that'll probably go up over time. And so the point A to point B time is just radically reduced. And so we think it's going to really serve the commute use case super well, where people are taking long trips in and out of cities, like from the suburbs into the city, et cetera. That'll, I think that's where it'll start. But then also, you know, across cities, like, you know, getting across San Francisco can take 45 minutes to an hour. Just like a 49-square-mile city, it's like seven miles across one of the horizontal vertical dimension. So you'd think, like, that would be kind of a quick trip. But no, it's a very, very long trip because of congestion. In the air, that could be a two-minute trip. So we see this, again, when I think about what I do at Uber, I'm trying to think about, you know, what does our mission imply? What kinds of moves can we make to make the user experience of cities better. And this is right up that alley. And as soon as the technology got into this zone where it made sense to start working on this in earnest, we started working on it in earnest. You mentioned a couple of, of the challenges to making this all happen. And so far, the battery challenges, the regulatory airspace challenges, mm-hmm. there's also cost and noise. Which of these barriers is ultimately going to be the most difficult? I mean, you guys have said that you'll be demonstrating this by 2020. So come mm-hmm. summer 2019, what's would be the holdup. You know, I, I think it's going to really come down to how fast we can execute on the vehicles. But at the end of the day, none of the barriers actually worry me that much. That's probably like overly ambitious or something. I don't know, or overly optimistic. But I, when I look at them, they all have very reasonable solutions that you know, and kind of like Plan A, Plan B, Plan C type situations. So I don't think we're going to find that any one of these things like tanks it. So it really comes down to like you know, 2020 is going to require a lot of execution. It's going to mean that these vehicles have to get into a state where they're ready to fly, and, with, and we yeah. want them to fly with passengers in them. And we're only going to do that if they cross our safety bar. And these are vehicles that haven't been made and flown with people yet. Correct, right. right. And and different companies are at different stages of that. Some companies have demonstrators that are flying but not flying with people yet. And some are at the drawing board, you know, and they're entering this thing, you know, brand new. Some companies have done multiple vehicles all the way through. Some are total startups that have never done the aviation thing before. And so it's really interesting. It'll be a very, I think, fascinating kind of process to watch. Now, the regulatory side of it, you know, there's, of course, risk of that slowing things down. But for doing the 2020 demonstrations, we're not talking about certified aircraft. They could get to that point, but if they're not, that's fine because they'll be experimental aircraft and those can be flown without full certification. Ultimately, though, I see a pretty clear path to getting the certification done for the vehicles and for the operations of the vehicles. That's not to say there's not a lot to figure out. We still have to build vertiports all over the place. So we're calling them skyports now. And you know, this means you know, kind of doing a lot of real estate work. But again, that's just like work to do. It's not like some kind of like you know, unsolved physics problem. Mm-hmm. And so I, I feel like all of these are in the realm of solvability, and it just, it's really just how well can we execute. But with the regulation, there's currently no clear standards for this type of craft. Right. right. So the government would have to create those standards and then regulate them. Not quite. So it's, it's changed quite a bit in the U.S. and in Europe. And EASA and FAA govern about 80% of the airspace in the world. So this is kind of most of the airspace. There's a new approach that's being used where um, essentially industry consensus groups are being used to create the standards. And so Part 23, which is what governs fixed-wing aircraft, is now under that type of structure, whereas rotorcraft on the Part 27 is not. It's the old style. So the way it used to work with regulations and certification for like a vehicle, for example, is you would have to actually essentially 
lobby the FAA and EASA to create this basis for certification for you. And so they'd have to do a ton of work on that front. And then actually the type certification standard for a particular aircraft. Now you can actually do that in the industry and submit it to the FAA and EASA for approval. And that process is a much, much lighter weight process for the government entity, which is really good because they obviously have a lot of demand for their time. And so streamlining that whole process makes it much better. Right after our Elevate Summit, there was a, um, a Part 23 workshop specifically focused on how do we think about using the Part 23 guidelines or you know certification standards for these types of aircraft. And so that's where I think it's going to go. It won't be the only way to go. We'll see people use different approaches for certification, but I think that's going to end up being the mainstream way that it gets done. So there is a way forward with regulation. So yeah. you were optimistic about these timelines, demonstrations in 2020, I think commercial in 2023? Yeah, that's what we're shooting for. Yeah, we think six years to commercial execution and not at scale yet. And then over the next four to five years after that, we'll just be scaling. I mean, look, we're in over 500 cities and 73 countries around the world. Every time I say that number, I have to check because it literally goes up every day. The number of continents does not go up every day, thank goodness, because we're in all of them but Antarctica right now. And we're not about to launch in Antarctica. So anyway, so that's, you know, we think that we'll get to scale, you know, kind of over those few years, uh, subsequent to the six years. I'm giving six years to give us time for the whole certification process and so forth, vehicle development. So if you had to place a bet on which will come first, would it be a driverless car with no human driver, no safety driver in the seat, driving around some city in the U.S., maybe San Francisco, or publicly available, widely used flying cars. I think the self-driving car is going to be first. The technology is being worked on aggressively by multiple companies. There's rapid iteration loops on that, so it's just likely to converge first. But, you know, they're not as far apart as you would have thought like a year ago. <laughs> People would have thought, I think, that, you know, kind of urban aviation is something that's 10 to 15 years out, 20 years out, something like that. And it's just not. I mean, it's going to happen much faster than that. And so how will a future self-driving car network link with the air network? For Uber, this is very clear. It's a multimodal trip. So these aircraft are going to fly between these sky ports. Ultimately, we can maybe have people have skyports on their lawn or whatever. That may happen someday, but there'll be lots of places you're not going to take off and land one of these aircraft. So you're going to basically be flying point to point at this network of ports. And so connecting that last half mile, mile, you know, whatever, we'll use all kinds of different things, you know, vehicles. People will walk, people will take public transit, they'll take Uber vehicles. So we can make it so you push a button, you get the multimodal trip. And that's how we see these things linking together. Say you're in the South Bay or in, you know, Mountain View or something, you might push a button, a car picks you up, takes you to a vertiport that's, you know, five minutes away. You get on the aircraft, you do the bulk of your trip on an aircraft, you land on top of some building in downtown San Francisco and take the elevator down, and then maybe you get in an Uber, maybe you work in that building, maybe you walk a couple blocks, that kind of thing. But that's how we see these things linking together. So ground transportation is still absolutely going to be a thing for the foreseeable future. It doesn't make sense to do certain trips in the air because there's just too much overhead and kind of going up in the air and then coming back down to do like a five-block trip or something. But I think what will happen is the longer trips for sure will be served by air better than by car. So, Jeff, I also wanted to ask a bit about your background. You spent many years at Amazon, I think eight years. Almost nine, yeah. Almost nine years, yeah. starting in 90s. 97 through 06, yeah. So kind of Amazon's early days when mm-hmm. it was, you know, had first gone public. Yeah, it went public a week after I arrived, actually. Good timing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, it was very good timing. Do the early days of Uber kind of remind you of that? And is there, I mean, I've heard that Uber has a culture of really looking up to Amazon and trying to emulate the Amazon values. I mean, Uber's 14 values, the 14 corporate values, have a lot of parallels with Amazon's 14 corporate values. 
So how does one experience inform the other? Yeah, no, it's actually interesting. Like, we definitely admire Amazon. There's no question. I mean, I adore Jeff Bezos. I think he's a phenomenal leader. I think he's built an incredible company in Amazon. I have a huge amount of respect for the company. I mean, I obviously have a lot of my fingerprints on it. You know, I, mean, I got to build Amazon Prime there. I got to build the whole back end of Amazon, the supply chain. A really amazing experience. And I definitely bring a lot from that to Uber that I believe is very valuable. That said, Uber was obviously here before I was. And it just turns out that Travis brings a lot of the same kind of thinking and approach to things as Jeff does. They're both incredible truth seekers, um, you know, just very much look right in the face of the truth and just embrace it. Ask hard questions, you know, very strategic and just this inside out type of thing. Like, you know, that's where innovation comes from. One of the big ways you innovate is you say, why is it this way or why can't it be this way? And then you actually go to first principles on it. You go to the physics of the question. And I think Jeff is very good at that. I think Travis is very good at that. Being an innovative culture, that kind of spawns a whole bunch of other cultural values by its nature. And so our, our cultures are very parallel. We didn't end up with 14 cultural values because Amazon has 14 leadership principles. We were actually surprised that it came out that way. Travis and I spent you know hundreds of hours, no joke, sitting and working on the values. And we literally, it, the beginning of that was trying to figure out like what's the right set. And just getting that set right was really hard, but it just came out to be 14. You know, it was like, it was like weird. Maybe there's some magic number to that. Like if this you know, the culture of this kind has this number of values somehow, but we don't feel like any of them are dispensable or that we should add anything to it. Do you know them off the top of uh, yeah. your head? I do. Travis and I wrote all of them, so I'm not. I can't go through them for you. That's what you want. <laughs> we actually consider it. We actually consider it proprietary, believe it or not, because it's really kind of like Uber's philosophy of work. And we talk about some of them sometimes and so forth. Although they have been published, they were published in. Yeah, yeah. that's right. I guess we have published them out. Yeah, I don't think we've ever published the detailed descriptions of all of them, though. Really? So that's considered a corporate secret. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, you know, we've talked a lot about the long-term strategy at Uber. What's the thing that you're most worried about? What keeps you awake at night? You know, we're working on the things that keep me awake at night. That's the great thing. It's, you know, I worry about disruption threats. I worry about the new technology that we just don't embrace. You know, artificial intelligence is a great example of that. We're in the super, super early innings, you know, of artificial intelligence really penetrating into the way we do things. And so I recently created our artificial intelligence labs here at Uber. We did an acquisition. We brought in a chief scientist, Zubin Garamani, who's a rock star in the AI world. And we're now just at the beginning of our journey of really infusing artificial intelligence and machine learning techniques into everything we do here. And that's obviously key to self-driving. It's key to the way you do network optimization. Kind of all of our businesses is, is deals with information. And intelligence around information is what artificial intelligence is about. And so that's one of these emerging kind of paradigm shifts that we have to be very much on top of them. You know, I feel like we are. But yeah, I say that and who knows what I'm not seeing, right? You never know what you don't know. And so what keeps me up at night the most is that, is the thing I haven't spotted or, you know, or that we as a company are not aware of that can come out of left field. Otherwise, we have a lot of work to do working on the core business, sort of the way we interface with our drivers. But we have, I think, phenomenal initiatives going on there. I think our rider experience gets better every day. Obviously, the network has gotten to scale, and we've been able to do really interesting things with it. Uberpool is a great example of that, just being able to put multiple people in one vehicle. So the dream we have of being able to get cars off the road is materializing. It's just, there's a lot of sort of really exciting things that are going on there that all require more work, but they have a lot of lift, you know, associated with them. But it's those unknown unknowns. Yeah. That, always, uh, yeah. always worry about. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining me. Of course. No, my pleasure. Thank you. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.